Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. In the following, you'll hear the second lecture in the series Biographies of Interwar Isms, recorded on the 23rd of March 2022. Enjoy. Welcome to this uh, second installment of the lecture series Biographies of Interwar Isms, organized by the Global Biographies Working Group, GlowBio, and supported by the International History Department of the London School of Economics, the New Diplomatic History Network, and the Center for Modern European Studies, SEMES, at uh, the University of Copenhagen. Uh, the idea uh, behind the series is quite simple. It's to explore how the biography can be used to understand the interwar period as a laboratory of various isms, with roots in the 19th century and repercussions for the remainder of the 20th and now 21st century. Uh, today, we are delighted to hear a lecture by Dr. Laura Almagor, lecturer in 20th century European history at the University of Sheffield, the title being Beyond Zion, the Jewish Territorialist Movement and Interwar Ideologies. And uh, we are also equally delighted that this session will be chaired by Ari Dubno, Associate Professor of History and uh, Max uh, Tichtin, uh, Chair of Israel Studies, also Director of Judaic Studies Program at the George Washington University. With that, uh, I will hand the word over to Ari, please. Thank you. Thank you, Hakon. I hope you can hear me well. Um, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining. I'm um, for me, it's afternoon. For most of you, it's probably evening. Uh, so wherever you are, uh, it's really my great um, honor and pleasure to uh, introduce Laura Almogor, um, whose uh, work I've been following for quite some time now. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with our speaker to, uh, tonight, Laurel Magor is a lecturer in 20th century European history at the University of Sheffield. Uh, her specialty is modern Jewish history with a focus on Jewish politics and culture in the late 19th and 20th century. Um, she received her PhD from the European University Institute in Florence in 2015. And since then, as uh, many of us are familiar with the term academic nomad, uh, um, uh, Laura used a very uh, funny expression of herself being a kangaroo. She moved between different places and position. She held a fellowship in Vienna at the Wiesenthal Institute for Holocaust Studies, uh, the Center for Jewish History in New York City, and the Central European University in Budapest, uh, before joining the University of Sheffield's Department of History in June 2020. She was also a teaching fellow at the LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science, at their Department of International History. So Almagor's work deals with Jewish political behavior and trajectories in Europe, in North America, and the Middle East, as well as the place of political jury within a larger geopolitical context. And her monograph, about which we will hear uh, in the next minutes, is entitled Beyond Zion, the Jewish Territorialist Movement. And it is published literally these days, so in a way we are honored to be kind of a, a, a early launch um, uh, event for the book. So it's published by the Littman Library of Jewish Civilization. And she also co-edits a volume entitled Global Biographies, Lived History as Method, that will be published uh, by Manchester University Press also uh, this year. So you can see that she's a very uh, prolific and active uh, uh, researcher. And as you have uh, heard in Hakon's uh, prefatory remarks, uh, Aramago is one of the uh, uh, co-conspirators in the group uh, that is hosting today's event, Global Biographies uh, Research Network, or GlowBio, that you can Google and find uh, online, which is an online platform. And for for the presentation, discussion, and dissemination of all things concerning global biographies, particularly in the 19th, 20th, and 21st uh, century. So uh, with that uh, uh, saying, I will pass the virtual microphone to you, Laura, and uh, who will speak for uh, roughly 40, 45 minutes, after which we will open up the floor uh, for uh, uh, a Q&A. 
Thank you so much, Ari, for that very generous introduction, uh, which really was very generous. Thank you. In 1967, uh, Michael Astor, a territorialist, uh, wrote in his Yiddish language uh, history of the Freeland League for Jewish Territorial Colonization. He wrote, Jewish life during the past 80 years, with all its multifaceted trends and processes, complex and full of contradictions, with its ramified and divisive spiritual world, was reduced to the naive and childish formula with a happy end, the establishment of the State of Israel. Now, Astur's comment um, can be read as much as a as, as much a critique of the of the Zionists, what he considered to be narrow focus on Palestine as the geographical location for the future of Jews, uh, as it was a critique of the post-1948 historiography dealing with the history of Jewish politics more generally speaking. Now Many of us may know the platitude that victors generally write histories, but I would argue that that's very much true here in the case of the Jewish territorialist movement. But I would also ask, was there in fact a battle that was won by Zionism at the, at the end of the day? And doesn't thinking in such binaries obscure the much more multicolored reality of what David Myers has famously termed um, the lost Atlantis of Jewish political behavior. And to ask that question is in a way to answer it. I, of course, believe that thinking in that, that binary way is, is a bit of an issue and obscures a much more interesting story that I hope to be contributing uh, to in, uh, to some extent. So as of 1905, the Jewish territorialist movement searched for places of settlement for Jews outside both Europe and Palestine. And in this talk today, I will explore the way in which the movement's leaders represented, but also challenged and maybe in some ways even shaped uh, the at times competing Jewish and non-Jewish political ideologies of the day. Now we'll be focusing on Zionism, Yiddishism, diaspora nationalism, but also socialism, communism, and colonialism. Now, even though I, I, I talk to you today under this umbrella uh, of, of a larger lecture series, um, this is also not so secretly uh, somewhat of a book talk, or at least a pre-publication book talk. So here you have it, the, the, the cover image of my forthcoming book, which actually today went to press. I got confirmation today. So it really should be a few weeks away. Uh, let's, let's keep our fingers crossed. I certainly do. I can't wait to finally hold, uh, hold the book in my hand. Uh, so just very generally before I, I dive into uh, um, the more narrow focus of today, just a few words about the book's main intervention, the overarching thing that I'm trying to do in the book, which really fall, falls into two, two interventions. So first of all, I, I try to write the history of this particular movement into this lost Atlantis of Jewish political behavior, insert the story into this larger narrative that is really developing and emerging as a, as a very interesting story, especially thanks to the labor of historians of the last more or less decade and a half. So that's the Jewish intervention. But at the same time, I also argue that looking at this arguably very marginal movement, helps us to critically examine larger geopolitical trends and discourses, uh, especially those pertaining to place, space, peoplehood, the shifting world order of the interwar and post-war period. Um, so I think exploring the discourses and ideologies um, used by this movement helps us to understand this larger story and vice versa, this larger geopolitical context also helps us to better understand where um, the protagonists of this story come from. Now, today's focus, uh, as said, will be to look at the, at the movement through the prism of biographies of interwar isms. And um, even though I was, of course, kind of forced into that mold, uh, I, I found it very fruitful, at least in thinking about this talk for today, because it has allowed me to shed light on my main protagonists, um, but also on their ideas as protagonists. And I think the latter is what I will be focusing on today. So in other words, it's biographies of people, but also biographies of ideas and even ideolo 
ideologies. So this is how my talk today will be also structured. Uh, after a short introduction, giving you just you know the, the parameters, the outlines of the movement's history, I want to go through what I think are the main driving ideas or even ideologies um, that help us understand the history of this movement. Um, now, this will be somewhat of an artificial division. Um, there will be a bit of a tension in, in, in discussing all these ideas as separate entities. As you will see, some of them, and many of them actually, bleed into one another as well. But for the purpose of today's exercise, which is really the first time that I'm doing it this way, so you all, my dear audience, also uh, figure a bit as my guinea pigs today. Um, for the purpose of doing that, I will, I will uh, focus on the ideas and separation from one another as well. Now, I said that I'm kind of cheating uh, by using this opportunity as a, as a book talk, but I'll also be cheating a bit by veering away from the temporal focus of biographies of interwarisms. Um, I, I will talk a lot about the interwar period, but I will also take it into the post-war period, uh, because to understand territorialism, I think this directly post-war period is really important. And um, apart from the fact that that suits my narrative very well, I think one of the merits and also one of the arguments of my book is that um, looking at this movement helps to challenge um, accepted temporal delineations, especially in, in Jewish studies where so much of modern Jewish history is written um, um, and, and marked by the pre and post Holocaust era, which for the territorialists is of course an equally important event as for other segments of Jewish society and societies. But it's not the watershed moment that you might think it is. So this story is also a lot about continuity as much as it is about rupture. Now, just a very short, brief, sweeping overview of what territorialist history was really about. Um, inevitably, I will gloss over things quite quickly. So if there's anything that you feel you would like to ask me about or you think I should have talked about more in terms of the, the factual history of the movement, then don't hesitate to ask me about that at the very end in the Q&A. So territorialism, my territorialism, and I'll say more about that in a minute, why I say my territorialism, uh, starts in 1905 at um, the 7th Zionist Conference. Uh, Hokon, if you would go to the next slide. Um, at this conference, the 7th Zionist Conference, um, the so-called Uganda proposal was voted down. Two years ago, in 1903, the British government had offered, had approached the very young Zionist movement, which was at that point only six years old, and had offered it a piece of its colonial territory in Africa, technically part of current-day Kenya, but at the time erroneously referred to as the Uganda proposal. And this proposal really formed a critical moment in the early history of the Zionist movement, as at this point, the narrow focus on Palestine wasn't decided yet. There were several forces within the movement that had different ideas about what Zion actually meant, the, the core idea of Zionism. So when the proposal was eventually uh, voted down, it led to the secession from the Zionist movement of about 50 quite prominent Zionists under the leadership of the Anglo-Jewish writer Israel Zangwill, who you see here on the slide, they left the room and they immediately formed their own organization, the Jewish Territorial Organization, which is usually referred to by its Yiddish acronym, ITO. So I will be referring to it as well as the ITO. And um, the ITO uh, saw itself as, as essentially the most Zionist movement because it saw itself as a pragmatic movement that uh, sought imminent solutions for the Jewish plight, rather than following what they consider to be the phantasmagorical aim of settling Jews in Palestine, which was at the time part of the Ottoman Empire, and didn't seem a realistic solution at all. So once the British came and said, we're offering you a particular territory, Zangwill and the people around him really believed that that opportunity should have been grasped, um, and it wasn't, so they left mainstream Zionism and formed their own movement. Now, in the following decades, the ITO explored various options, uh, first and foremost within the British Empire, exclusively within an imperial setting. Um, 
many of these were explored through different uh, um, reports, investigations. Uh, the most serious projects that the ITO became involved in, though, were the so-called Galveston Project, not technically territorialist, but they became the European partner in this immigration scheme that was really aimed at uh, redirecting Russian Jewish immigrants um, on their way to, to the United States, not to arrive in the already overcrowded city of New York, but to actually disperse um, through the less settled parts of the US via the port city of Gal Galveston. Therefore, it became known as the Galveston Scheme. And this scheme ran from 1907 until the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. The other more serious plan that the ITO was involved in was the Angola uh, plan, uh, where there were various partners involved um, in, in thinking about the future of Angola, which was uh, under Portuguese rule. But during the First World War, there were um, all kinds of ideas about you know, that territory being able to be uh, taken over by other imperial powers. And the ITO saw a chance to become kind of a partner in those discussions as, as well. This didn't happen, and um, one could say that the outbreak of the First World War definitely impeded the success of the ITO, as did the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which happened in the context of the war, uh, which was uh, the presumably promise, British promise, of uh, a Jewish national home in Palestine. Um, but Zangwill was quite reluctant to draw immediate conclusions from that and to disband the organization. So it kept uh, remaining in, it remained in existence until uh, 1925, when Zangwill eventually did disband it um, not too long before his own death the following year in 1926. Now, from that moment onwards, 10 years of apparent silence um, occurred on the, on the territorialist scene or in the territorialist story. Uh, until the early to mid-1930s, uh, 1934, say, which is when um, developments in Europe, first and foremost, the rise to power uh, of, of Hitler and Nazi Germany, um, but also the rise of anti-Semitism, more generally speaking, on the European continent, drove people to revisit this idea of territorialism. And this time it became much less an Anglo-Jewish, somewhat elitist project aimed at helping Eastern European Jews, but it became a, a much more grassroots organization. So different subgroups um, uh, sprung up, often initially unrelated to one another in different parts of Europe, but quite quickly they were united and again headquartered in London, as the ITO had been before, and um, named the Freeland League for Jewish Territorial Colonization. As mentioned, it was a more grassroots organization. It became much more a central European-led affair, uh, with the exception of, of, of this, this man, Joseph Leftwich, who was also an Anglo-Jewish uh, figure. He knew, he had known Zangwill personally. Um, and for a short time, he was uh, really one of the intellectual leaders of the movement. And from the central European branches, uh, people looked up to him as, as the potential new leader. Um, in, in many of the actually very few histories of territorialism or mentions of, of the history, left which is often um, not included. So I mentioned him here also as kind of a forgotten figure within an already partially forgotten history, who actually, when you look at the documents and you look at the archives, was quite, quite crucial and quite relevant. And one of the reasons why he has not been included in, 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 these, in these longer histories has to do with the fact that he himself did his utmost later on not to be included in the early histories of territorialism as well, which really points to the agency of historical actors themselves in the writing of history uh, and their histories and the histories they are a part of, which uh, for me is one of the interesting observations, especially in the context of biography and biographical methods, uh, the takeaways from, from my research. Now, the Freeland League, before the outbreak of the Second World War, uh, was equally um, imperially colonially focused as its predecessor, the ITO, and it looked at various colonial options. It explored various options, first and foremost in the British and French empires. And there's a brief moment in the late 1930s where um, um, there are negotiations, actually, with the the French government, uh, the, the Léon Blum government, represented by its Minister of Foreign Affairs, Marius Mouter, 
um, where the free lenders talk about French and British Guiana, um, the new Hebrides, uh, New Caledonia as optional places where maybe settlements can be created for Jews. Uh, more infamously, it is the Freeland League that actually proposes Madagascar as an option as well. And, and some of you may know that Madagascar became um, a much more famous alternative history for Jews because it was taken up by the Nazi leadership as well for a short time. The Nazis imagined Madagascar as a dumping ground uh, for, uh, for European Jews, perhaps as a smokescreen to cover up more explicitly genocidal plans or maybe as a step on the way to the genocide as it would unfold in the Holocaust. But the origins of the Madagascar plan actually come from, from, from Jewish uh, circles, from, from uh, the Freedom League in particular. Now, before the outbreak of war, really the most uh, developed plan, which really becomes also one of the most famous plans of the Freedom League, is the plan that is explored in Australia. So this uh, individual, Isaac Nachman Steinberg, who will soon become the main leader of the Freeland League, is sent in 1939 as an emissary to Australia to explore the options of settling Jews in, in the Kimberley district, in the Kimberleys, in the north of the country. Um, due to the outbreak of war, he stays there actually for four years until 1943 and uses that time to um, pilot what will become really the Freeland League's um, um, methods or methodology after the war as well, which is engaging with all kinds of grassroots organizations, uh, waging hearts and minds campaigns. This is really also a term that he himself uses a lot, establishing all kinds of Jewish organizations and periodicals. And the afterlife of all of this is to some extent still uh, tangible in Australia today. So he really in inserts himself into the fabric of, of Jewish Australia. Um, the Kimberley plan, unsurprisingly, also doesn't succeed for various reasons, but there's definitely a, a, a precedent created for what comes after. And it most importantly establishes Steinberg as uh, the main leader and the main ideologue of what will become the post-war uh, Freeland League. Now, a few words about Steinberg. He uh, was a, a, a Russian Jew, a, a socialist revolutionary, and in fact, the first commissar of justice in the very very short-lived first cabinet of, uh, of Lenin, which was a coalition government between the Bolsheviks and the left socialist revolutionaries, which lasted from the October Revolution in 1917 until the Treaty of Preslitovsk in March the following year. So this is a very brief period where Steinberg becomes part of, of really the leadership of this new revolutionary experiment, the Soviet Union, uh, or the, 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 the precursor to the Soviet Union. And, and um, this will become very important for the way he develops his later political career, which then at the end of the day feeds into his territorialist activities as well. Now, the final um, project that I should mention here, and, and with that we also get to the end of the outline of the story of territorialism, is uh, the plan that is explored just after the end of the Second World War uh, in the Dutch colony um, of Suriname, uh, Dutch Guiana, which is uh, geographically between British and French Guiana in Latin America. Uh, and this plan is on the table between 1946 and 1948. And it is by, by all means really the most uh, seriously explored project for the Freeland League. And this is where they, for the first time, really sense victory. There's various expeditions organized to, to Suriname. Um, the Staten von Suriname, the Surinamese legislative body, actually approves an initial plan. And here we see an announcement in, in actually an American periodical, PM, that uh, outlines, it's not very clearly visible, here I see the text, but it, it just shows how this plan really resonates um, um, in in in. Uh, um, in, in actually in Jewish uh, and beyond Jewish contexts as well. Uh, I should also mention by this point, um, the Freeland League headquarters have moved from London to New York City, as has Steinberg after his return from Australia. So the power center uh, and the intellectual center for the movement is now uh, newly uh, placed in North America and is also trying to become part of the American Jewish political scene. And from that vantage point, it also looks geographically to the Americas as, uh, as a more interesting uh, place uh, for, for their settlement projects to take place. Um, so um, 
the Staten van Suriname accepts the plan behind the scene, the Dutch government is actually not so interested, interested but that doesn't become so clear because we find ourselves also in a period of transition uh, in general, in terms of colonial world order. And in Suriname uh, in particular, because this is really the years in which a recalibration of um, the division of power is taking place. So there is a partial enfranchisement of uh, the local political elite. They feel that they are are getting very close to independence, but of course, from the colonial perspective uh, in, in The Hague, that is not yet the case. So this relatively small project becomes also part of those changing power dynamics, and it is very unclear for the Free and League uh, where all of this is going, but I'll, I'll say a few more things about that later on as well. In any case, um, the Suriname plan um, gets moved off the table in August 1948 for various reasons, um, the most obvious one being the establishment of the State of Israel uh, just three months before in May, uh, which makes, especially the Dutch authorities, very reluctant to be supportive of what could be perceived as a uh, competitive project somewhere else. Um, at the same time, uh, the Dutch are waging a colonial war in, uh, in Suriname, or in uh, the Dutch East Indies, in, in soon to be Indonesia at the time, um, the growing Cold War context also makes the authorities quite reluctant to be open to what will essentially be Eastern European Jewish immigrants um, that at this point are refugees in refugee camps in Europe. Uh, but there, there is a lot of kind of anti-Eastern European discourse merged with um, anti-Semitic tropes as well when you look at the sources and you see the reasoning behind the scenes for rejecting this plan uh, at the end of the day. Now, Suriname really marks the end of um, the, the political active life of, of the territorialist movement. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the Freeland League stops existing. It becomes an actually pretty vocal partner in, in, in the growing critical discussions, Jewish discussions, criticizing uh, the Zionist conduct in Palestine than Israel. So it publishes a lot of, of those criticisms. Uh, it engages in, uh, in, in the American Jewish political community very much. And it reinvents itself, especially after Steinberg's death in 1957, as a Yiddishist organization. And I'll also talk a little bit more about Yiddishism uh, in a minute. Um, and um, for those of you who wonder what came of territorialism at the end of the day, um, Pretty late, actually, in the late 1970s, the Freeland League for Jewish Territorial Colonization, which it was still called at the time, uh, renamed itself as League for Yiddish, which is still an organization in existence today. So for those of you who might know, it's, it's based in New York. It's pretty active, does a lot of great Yiddish cultural work and is aware of its own territorial past. But this is just a, a, it's become part of its founding myth rather than part of its uh, political or cultural agenda. So that is a, as a sweeping overview of territorialist history. Now, over to the isms, uh, the, the core of what I wanted to uh, experiment and share with you today. Uh, here we see, um, sorry, I, I, I forgot that this one is here. I also really wanted to mention this individual. This is Steinberg's daughter, Ada Siegel, born Ada Steinberg, who really also becomes part of this post-war reinvention of the Freeland League as an American Jewish political organization. She's definitely not part of any of the history books accounts of the story, but she is an absolutely pivotal person, uh, especially in, in trying to reformulate territorialism and make it palatable for an American Jewish audience. A uh, very interesting person who died very, very young, uh, but managed to make her mark in various ways. Uh, happy to talk a bit more about her if anyone is interested in the Q&A as well. So here they are, the isms that I want to briefly uh, use as molds really to touch upon several key features of what I think forms territorialist ideology. And to start um, with territorialism itself, it is an ism, right? Um, and one of the issues with territorialism that I've encountered in my own conceptualization uh, of the movement, but also very much whenever I present and talk about the topic, uh, is the ambiguity of the name itself, territorialism. 
aren't many movements territorialist? Isn't Zionism territorialist in essence? So I just want to clarify that what I mean here, and that is not to discount the territorial nature of a lot of other uh, movements as well, but what I focus on here is really the organizational history of the territorialist movement, which manifested itself in its two incarnations, first the ITO and then its successor organization, the Freeland Loop, and everyone around them. So what I'm really looking at is not territorialism as a fluffy idea, but territorialism as an actual movement that was driven and shaped by actual people. Here you see uh, a picture taken at the Seventh Zionist Congress in 1905. Uh, these were the secessionists uh, just after they left the room and they had formed the ITO. And here they pose sitting around a portrait of Theodor Herzl, the founding father of Zionism, uh, which is a pretty significant choice and really points at how they saw that they took further the origins of, or the core of Zionism as they perceived it. Um, so here, just to show that I'm talking about people rather than just an idea. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't an, an underlying idea and territory being so central to, to the name of the movement, uh, of course, was also central to, to its outlooks. It was looking for a territorial solution for Jews, which uh, they, they considered to have maybe no future in Europe, or at least no future at that point in particular parts of Europe. So in 1905, this is really very much about Russian Jews in the Tsarist empire. But in the 1930s, we're talking about different Jewish communities in Europe that might at that point in the West still feel very safe, but in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, not so much. But in essence, it's about soil. And uh, very pragmatically, we need a space where Jews can settle. But there's also a redemptive quality to this soil, to space. Um, and with that, it, the movement really relies on Tolstoyan ideas of redemption through working the land, through agriculture. Uh, in the Jewish context, it's A.D. Gordon, who is also very much inspired, of course, by Tolstoy. But it's these ideas that may not be so explicit in the territorialist writings, but that seep through everything, combined with um, the, the Zionist idea um, of, of, of a new Jew, a muscle Jew, not the, the, the poor um, European uh, unmuscular Jew that works and that sits all days in the yeshiva, but a new Jew, a muscular Jew who works the land or redeems himself through that work. So all of these ideas that are shared between various Jewish movements of the time, modern movements of the late 19th and early 20th century, they also drive uh, territorialism. So it's very much about agriculture, but not only, because the territorialists do recognize that in the 20th century especially, this has to be a modern project. It cannot just be agriculture. There has to be another element. And this is where they introduce the notion of industry, to combine with agriculture and become agro-industry. So these settlements are supposed to be agro-industrial settlements. Uh, and that really makes, makes it a project of modernity in the eyes of the territorialists themselves. Now, territorialism is, uh, in the first instance, about creating prospects for a Jewish future wherever Jews are. Um, but it's also very much about proving the inherent quality of Jews to be able to create these settlements. There's also an outward-facing aim here, demonstrating to the world that Jews can be uh, agriculturists, they can be farmers, they can create these modern agro-industrial settlements. And these ideas are shaped in the first instance by Zangwill, whilst he leads the ITO, uh, and then very much taken off further by Steinberg and his daughter, Ada Siegel. Now, I should underline, because uh, there will be a question about this, I'm pretty sure in the Q&A, that the, none of these plans, none of these projects ever materialized. So it never, it never was tested. They never managed to actually experiment with these agro-industrial settlements uh, and see if, if it could work. So th this remains, like, territorialism remains this what-if story, uh, which I think is also a label that it very often has gotten, and I don't discount that as uh, unuseful. I very much uh, believe in counterfactual history. But uh, I do, I do um, propose that we should also look at territorialism, not from the, the starting point of failure, um, but also see it for its own merits, but more about that in, in the conclusion. 
So then the second ism that is very important is Zionism. And here we see a rather famous um, um, image created by the Zionist artist, uh, early Zionist artist, uh, E.M. Lillian, a famous invitation to the Fifth Zionist Congress in, in uh, 1901. And... Um, one of my partially failed ambitions or aspirations for my book was to write the history of territorialism um, without Zionism as, as a reference point altogether, actually. When the history of territorialism has been written, and it has been definitely touched upon by various uh, scholars in very helpful ways that have really also driven and undergirded my, undergirded my own work, but they do conceptualize territorialism either as a footnote to Zionism, as a way of understanding Zionism better. Um, and I think that's evidenced by the book titles of, I think, the two most important books that have dealt with this history, which is Goura Roy's um, um, Zionism Without Zion and Adam Rovner's work In the Shadow of Zion. So I think these two titles uh, already indicate how much Zionism has functioned as this, um, this, this, this meta story of which territorialism might form a part or even not more than a footnote. So I've tried to do it without doing that, but I failed. Um, the Zionist connection is imposed by both the history of territorialism as, as, it, as it is by the existing historiography. So at the end of the day, I did dedicate a full chapter in my book to the relationship between Zionism and territorialism, which is also uh, definitely an element factor in the rest of the book as well. But I did manage to kind of condense the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is really that this is a story of the origins, but then departure. So territorialism very practically, very literally originates from Zionism, but it, it departs from it and it definitely moves away from it in an ideological sense. So by the 1930s, 1940s, territorialism is ideologically opposed to Zionism. Really, the one point of connection is the territorial element uh, and, and part of the intended methods of working the land, etc. There's definitely connections there. The connections do remain in other ways, and this is also what that chapter in my book is about, but these connections are more so based on individual connections between people than it is about ideological connections. So Zangwill and later Steinberg become these very outspoken critics of the Zionist project. So it's perhaps then surprising, actually, that both Zangwill and, uh, and Leftwich, so the lesser-known leader, early leader of the Freeland League, uh, that they were had both personal connections to uh, Zionist revisionist leader uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky. So Zangwill collaborated with Jabotinsky in setting up uh, an ill-fated and never really materialized, but still planned a unit, a military unit, during the First World War. Um, and left, which actually was a, was a close acquaintance of uh, Jabotinsky and revisionists and labored on, on behalf of the revisionists in, in various ways, also after Jabotinsky dies in 1940. When the Freeland League is established in the mid-1930s, one of its uh, core members, British members, Leopold, uh, Leopold Kessler, even suggests that Jabotinsky could be the leader of the new territorialist movement. So this is, this is quite interesting. Now, when we look at Steinberg, he was probably the furthest away uh, from, from Zionism. He had no personal connection to the movement growing up in revolutionary Russia. But he did later, and this brings us into the post-war period, develop very close relationships with Natan Khofshi and Rav Benjamin, who are the leaders of Ikhut, um, unity. Uh, and for those of you who are really into these matters, Ikhut was the successor organization to Brit Shalom, uh, which uh, and they were both pacifist Zionist movements. They were Zionist, explicitly Zionist, but they believed in a very different path for Zionism than the mainstream movement uh, uh, represented and eventually also uh, executed. So in the 1940s, Steinberg, who is very close to Hofschi, both in terms of his own uh, background uh, and and and. Uh, coming of age, etc. Uh, they, they establish a very interesting relationship and there's a, a, a fascinating correspondence that is produced by that relationship. So there is this pacifism, this anti-statism that is shared between these, what I in some places have called heterodox Zionists and, uh, and, 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 the, and the later territorialists. 
And these relationships, once you actually see them emerging, they, they appeal to the inner diversity of, of, of Zionism and Zionist history. And this is an idea that I didn't come up with, this idea of talking about appealing to the inner diversity. I have to thank actually Dirk Moses, who is, I think, in the virtual room with us today, uh, for making me see that as, a, as the kind of conclusion to be drawn from all of this. Now, if we take territorialist history, which practically ends in 1948, but we consider it to have an afterlife as well, then we see that relationship even going further, where in the 1950s, a bunch of what could be termed disappointed Zionists or long disappointed Zionists find in territorialism an alternative, an outlet for their Jewish political identities. Uh, one of the most famous examples of this is the um, scholar of nationalism, Hans Kohn, who by the 1950s had long left the Zionist movement, but only then uh, began to labor on behalf of the Freeland League and was also connected to Ehud. So the, the dominant narrative of Kohn's life is that he becomes this rootless scholar of nationalism who has kind of left all his, uh, his, his national um, um, affiliations or nationalist affiliations. But I think that gets problematized a bit when we look at his connections to these movements in the 1950s. And that then brings me to another very elusive ism, uh, diaspora nationalism. And in this case, specifically Jewish diaspora nationalism. Of course, this term can be also used to describe other um, types of uh, nationalism that exist in the same time frames and, and geographical areas. But here I focus on Jewish diaspora nationalism, which is very vague and a label that could be attached to various movements. So we could think of the folkists, we could even think of Bundism, uh, the Jewish labor bund, Marxist Jewish labor bund as being diaspora nationalists and becoming even more so. Even Zionism after the 1906 Force conference um, actively espouses these diaspora nationalist ideals of investing in Jewish communities um, in the diaspora. So this is really about non-statist um, autonomy, cultural autonomy of ethnic minorities and specifically the Jews. Um, it's not a clearly defined concept. Uh, I found it very helpful to look at Joshua Carlip's work, who also doesn't offer us a, a definition of diaspora nationalism, but he does offer the, the, the story of the movements, I think, that populate um, this, this label and, and also the, the main protagonist of that story. So the driving belief, I think, when looking at these particular specific movements is that there is a Jewish future in Europe. And this, this movement, it should be said, has its heyday really in the interwar period in Central and Eastern Europe. And there is a belief there is a Jewish future in, in Europe and it's non-statist, which connects it very much to territorialism. Um, and even though the territorialists may have been more pessimistic about this future in Europe, it did always, always um, very actively support diaspora nationalist projects. And again, here we see that it's the individual connections that show the intellectual intellectual connections that, that lie at its core. Um, arguably one of the, the intellectual fathers of territorialism, um, Yiddish writer Ben Adir, was both a diaspora nationalist and a territorialist. Um, the diaspora nationalist, but also socialist revolutionary figure, Chaim Zidlowski, whom we see here on the left. Um, and then on the right is his more moderate counterpart, uh, Shimon Dubnov, um, really the, the, the intellectual driver of Jewish diaspora nationalism. And both of them are acknowledged by the territorialists as, uh, as intellectual inspiration, sources of inspiration. Um, now, Various followers of these movements, um, most famously Yusuli Foykin, Zamor Kalmanovich, for those of you who know the diaspora nationalist movements, they leave these different movements for territorialism. They become members, they don't just affiliate themselves, they become members of the territorialist movement. And again, for them, uh, it it, it might offer an alternative. It's all about a context of growing disappointment of the 1930s, where this idealist diaspora nationalist project may seem uh, unattainable, increasingly unattainable, with territorialism offering an alternative that is not Zionism, which is distasteful to many of these people, but it's also not Marxist Bundism. It's actually a seemingly non-partisan way of conceptualizing a Jewish future. Um, Yiddishism, my next ism, 
in many ways could be seen as a function of diaspora nationalism. Because what connects all these different Jewish communities in Europe? It's their language. And it's the culture that comes with the language, which is Yiddish, which is by far the most spoken language of the Jews in Central and Eastern Europe between the wars. Uh, but it was much more than a language. And it's this much more that I think uh, qualifies this as a separate ideology or idea or set of ideas in the context of uh, territorialist history. This was not about language only, but about Yiddishkeit, about a shared set of ideas of, of, of Jewishness. Uh, I think in history there are various other uh, examples, and maybe that's something we can also discuss later, uh, where you know, there's different um, um, places and, and cultural contexts in which language becomes much more than a language. It's, it's the lived experience of Jews in Europe. And um, generally... Uh, uh, and and, and for, 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 the, for the territorialists, it becomes also a way of differentiating themselves uh, from Zionism. Because the Zionist project is also about a Hebrew identity, which comes with the Hebrew language, etc. And this is by, by latching on and increasingly latching on to Yiddish as a marker of Jewishness, the territorialists also show um, or want to show that they are more in touch with the reality of Jewish life than the Zionists are. Now, in, in the existing historiography on territorialism, Yiddish is not a very central feature because actually the main territorialists didn't have such strong connections to Yiddish at all. Zangwill definitely did not speak Yiddish. Steinberg had a problematic relationship with it, although uh, possibly it was his first language or at least second next to, to Russian. Um, Leftwich was a Yiddish translator, so surely he, he felt very connected to the Yiddish um, project, but he became very marginal in the movement. But I would still argue it's very important to look at, at Yiddishism as a, as a context, ideological context, to understand this wider circle uh, of territorialism, and also to understand how it became attractive to certain very exotic people. Uh, one of them you can see here on the slide, the bearded man is Nathan Birnbaum, uh, one of the most fascinating figures of, of Jewish political history, who at the very end of his life allies himself with territorialism. Then he dies in 1937, but his, his, the people around him, and he's here uh, next to the Dutch territorialist, uh, Henri van Leeuwen, who then becomes uh, an important um, um, figure in the Freeland League and in the Suriname negotiations with the Dutch uh, authorities as well. So why do these people in the 30s, why do they find territorialism. And I think this appeal to a kind of Yiddish guide, which is very undefined, which can be both religious and secular, I think that's one, one clue in trying to understand why this, this movement appeals to, to people. So, so far I've, I've spoken mostly about Jewishisms, but Jewishisms, of course, didn't exist in isolation or in a vacuum. They were part of a wider, a wider context. Um, and a very important wider context is, is the history of socialism and communism. Um, and not just as a political ideological system, because territorialism was not, did not define itself as socialist, but this was definitely the ideological context for the coming of age of several of the main protagonists of the story. First and foremost, uh, Isaac Steinberg. So here we see on the very left uh, on the picture a barely 30-year-old Steinberg in his role as Commissar of Justice in this first cabinet of, of Lenin. So in the middle you see Vladimir Lenin sitting uh, his desk. Um, but also Zangwill and Leftwich, they were affiliated with various socialist movements uh, and um, they were connected to a wide spectrum, socialist, anarchists, etc. Very much anti-Soviet, not once that became relevant, but definitely, but at the same time very much connected to socialist ideology. And the socialist revolutionary background of Steinberg especially came to influence the kind of language that became the, the staple language of the Freeland League, especially in its growing criticism, moral criticism of the Zionist policies in the Middle East, especially its statism, its militarism. Um, and... Uh, there is a direct connection to be made between the so left socialist revolutionary ideas and ideologies that shaped Steinberg and how he took that into his Jewish political life later on. And I'd be happy to talk a bit more about that uh, if anyone is interested. Um, 
And I should also mention um, that uh, the Marxist labor bund, the Jewish labor bund, uh, was uh, a movement that didn't sit well with the territorialists. But at the same time, the Bundist successes, this was a very popular party, uh, especially in Poland in the 1930s, um, it, it served as, a, as an example. It was an inspiration for the territorialists to think of um, the feasibility of alternatives to Zionism to resonate with the wider public. And then finally, there was the, um, the Soviet plan, the, the, the Soviet project in Birobijan, in, in, in uh, uh, Siberia, which was established as an autonomous oblast within the Soviet structure in the 1920s, uh, eventually failed, but at the time was, was seen by a whole lot of uh, Jewish political uh, movements as very inspirational, and the territorialists were not an exception in that they really saw Birobijan as proof for the fact that Jews can work the land and can settle successfully outside of Palestine. And that brings us to um, my finalism. And here we see how all of these isms bleed into one another because uh, I, I, of course, touched upon these topics um, already. But I would like to highlight this as a, as a separate category uh, that is very important for our understanding of the, the wider relevance and significance of the history of territorialism. Of course, territorialism was an intrinsically colonial project. It was born as such, it was conceptualized as such. Uh, Zangwill was an imperial thinker. He really believed in the, in the British Empire and, and latched the fate of the movement onto the British Empire from the very beginning. And that trend was continued by his successors in the Freeland League as well, adjusting to the context of the time, but still it remained a colonial project. Yet, the relationship of territorialism to colonialism was not a straightforward, um, was, not, was not straightforward. It was, it was quite complex. Zengel believed in, 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 in empire, left, which was kind of racist in many of his writings. But Steinberg, on the other hand, was shaped in a very different mindset, namely revolutionary Russia. And he did have some slightly delusional ideas about changing colonial dynamics and the effectivity of hearts and minds campaigns, as we saw happening in the Suriname scheme, where he just didn't seem in touch with the reality of race relations uh, in these moments of transition. Um, it's, it's, I see it's not become uh, better in transition to the PDF, but here we see a, a, an image from a Surinamese daily uh, kind of you know, ridiculing the Suriname plan. So here we see several representatives of, of, of ethnic and racial minorities in Suriname uh, who ask this Jewish stock character, uh, now, you too, now you too want to join us, little Abraham. Um, just showing uh, the, 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 the perception of detachment on the part of, kind of external observers to this plan. Space was central. An empty space was what it was all about. This is why it was such a colonial project, because empty spaces, where were they? They were in the various empires, but of course no space is really empty. And this is where we find a kind of blind spot in, in territorialist thinking. They conceptualized um, their project to take place in empty spaces that in reality didn't exist. And it's not that they were really blind to that fact, because they acknowledged it very much in their criticism of the Zionist movement. But for some reason, that didn't translate into a self-assessment when they thought about their plan in the colonial realm, which doesn't set them really apart from other movements, I think. It, what it does show is a, is a kind of dual um, zeitgeist, where on the one hand, uh, one can, can be very critical of of, of colonialism in one place and at the same time believe in colonial practices elsewhere. Now, why that is, there's, there's various ideas and, and various ways in which we can make sense of this seeming tension. And I, I try to do that a bit in my book, but just wanted to mention that here is one of the very interesting takeaways from the colonial history of territorialism. And that then, uh, and I'm conscious of time, uh, brings me to... Uh, my final thoughts that I wanted to share with you. And um, one, one thought is about the notion of failure and counterfactuality, but especially of failure, success and failure as the kind of measures that we use to decide what is relevant history and how should it be told. Um, and one of the things that I found in looking at this movement that was unsuccessful across the board is that by looking at it 
in terms of failure or success, we discount the notion of imaginability. So if we try to unimagine what happened after, and if we try to uh, not assess whether these people had, had some sort, were onto something, we have to think what their contemporaries thought. Did they think that they were onto something? And even though the territorialist movement never became a mass movement, never became the mass movement that it aspired to be, um, clearly a very small but very influential group of people did think that. Um, and beyond the people that I already mentioned in passing, one could mention um, famous German authors like Alfred Dublin and Thomas Mann as open supporters of the movement, um, British Labour politician Arthur Preach Jones, uh, the famous geographer um, and, and, and president of Johns Hopkins, Isaiah, Isaiah Bauman, was a supporter for different reasons, but still he, he supported, very actively supported the project in various moments in time. So just a, a selection. There's, there's many more celebrities that backed the movement in one way or another. But it shows that for these contemporaries, territorialism was at least imaginable. Um, and I think that fact alone makes it relevant to write this history as part of this larger story of Jewish political behavior um, and as part of this larger geopolitical uh, context and discourse, uh, as, I, as I proposed at the very beginning. And with that, I, I would like to end my reflections and thoughts today. Uh, thank you very much. And I very much look forward to uh, any questions and remarks. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura, both for a um, uh, very enlightening talk and, and a fabulous book. Uh, I had the pleasure of reading it and, and the proofs of both meticulously researched and beautifully written. And as you could see from your talk, weaves together so many different threads um, um, while people are kind of uh, gathering their thoughts and of course are welcome to raise hands virtual hands or post uh, questions on on the zoom chat i will use it my prerogative to throw a few initial questions um, at you um, and the first that perhaps uh, you know that comes to mind, and maybe in the context of our group of some kind of global bio, uh, apparently a, a simple one, but perhaps uh, uh, a challenging one, is to put your biography on the spot. Uh, what you know drew you to a project of uh, of this kind? Uh, we all know that uh, you know historians are coming to um, are choosing their subject matters and are asking questions based on sometimes on family trajectories or personal experiences or attempts to, especially in a, in a fraught topics like yours, to either understand the roads not taken or to understand the heretics, the secessionist moves in order to keep the, the Zionist movement sort of in its clear ideological purity by studying the heretics. Uh, so I'm just curious, how, how did you stumble upon this project? Yeah, thanks, A. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say that by the time the book comes out, which indeed I hope is very, very soon, it will have been a decade and a half since I first ventured into um, topics related to this, which is a bit of a shocker the moment I realized that I actually started working on territorialist history in some form in 2006 uh, for my then MA uh, thesis. Uh, doesn't mean that I worked on this book for 15 years, so don't, don't think it's like that, but it feels like that for sure. Um, so... Uh, that, that's how I came to this. So in my, in, my, in my MA degree in international relations, which was historical, but really also more about political uh, uh, history, I wrote about the Freeland League in Suriname. This was a, a plan that from a Dutch political historical perspective I had come across. It intrigued me. Um, surely it's maybe semi-evident that I have my own background, uh, my own Jewish and actually more specifically Israeli background. So some of this idea of territory and statehood or non-statehood or alternatives to statehood intrigued me. Um, and then when I researched that as really a diplomatic history topic, so going to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, going through all this diplomatic stuff, I realized that behind that 
seemingly very small story that was a much larger history of a movement um, and as I um, foolishly thought a PhD would be a good idea I thought this could be developed into that now it took some years before I actually took off with the project uh, and it became um, the dissertation that lies at the basis uh, of the book um, so so yeah that's that's kind of how it um, how it's started yeah uh, and and so who would you think, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm not the person to judge because I'm studying these, these topics, but who would you imagine would be the readership for that book? Who, who do you think will be drawn to, uh, uh, to the study, attracted um, 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 outside uh, a very uh, um, 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 a clear group of, of experts on the field, uh, how it speaks to, to larger questions and um, uh, both in, within Jewish history uh, but and, 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 and outside Jewish history. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the first the first group, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's various people who find something interesting. So historians of Zionism, of course, would be could be interested. I think there's an element of uh, of, of the what if that at the same time I embrace and I'm critical of this idea of the, the, the curiosities of history. Right? There is there is an element of a curiosity to the story of this from our vantage point, absolutely uh, tragic failure. Especially if maybe you are in the current day critical of. of, of what's happening in, 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 in the state of Israel. I think a lot of people who, who like my work or like the topic also come to it from that, from that starting point of a, uh, a, a finding out where it went wrong. Those who are critical of what's, what's going on now in, in the state of Israel, they want to know where did it go wrong and maybe we should have gone to Uganda. I mean, this I've heard from quite a few people on the left uh, in Israel, like, ah, oh, yeah, we should have gone to Uganda, which is, of course, a very simplistic understanding of the history. But that maybe explains the motivation to get to here, to look at the past and see if, if we can draw anything from that for, for the present. Um, then there's the literary quality of the story, which um, is manifested through the main protagonists. I didn't highlight that so much in my presentation, but many of these people were actually literary figures. They were writers, first and foremost, Sangwill, uh, and, and that also made researching them amazing because these people could write also in their political work, really, the amount of amazing quotations that I've come across. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure also makes it um, difficult not to feel some sort of connection to these people, uh, which I don't think is a problem. We've discussed this a lot in our global settings, like how much can we be in touch really with the people, but one has to be conscious and wary of that dynamic as well. But anyway, so the, the literary quality there and then the what if literary quality. So some of you might know uh, Michael Shaben's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is a novel that came out some years ago, which is based based on a purely territorial suggestion of uh, exploring Alaska. I mean, the, the list of territories that were mentioned by territorialists is endless. Uh, and Alaska was one of them. And there was a short exchange with, I think, the Minister of the Interior at some point in, in the 1940s. So I think Michael Shaben came across that and based his what-if um, novel that focuses on uh, it's, it's an alternative story in which the, the state of Israel fails and an alternative state is established in Alaska. Um, so that's that's where it takes off. Uh, and, and I think that element of it is also interesting to people. Wonderful. Um, and I will, I will ask one more question and then we'll move to questions that uh, uh, are uh, written on the, on the chat. Um, so for for scholars of uh, Jewish you know political history and and more generally and and territorialism in particular uh, there are already several books out there that are studying that were dedicated to the subject so i uh, how would you would characterize your own kind of intervention in that field uh what what do you, uh, uh, in what regards you continue conversations, the paths of, of previous uh, scholarship and, and in what respects you, you depart from them and offer an alternative account? No. So first of all, it's the liberation of territorialism from the umbrella of Zionist history and writing it as a history alongside Zionism with many points of connection 
but as a self-standing story. So as I said, despite the great work done by other scholars, I don't think the movement has been really conceptualized as a self-standing story, not comparable to Zionism in terms of its success and size, etc., but definitely as a, as a separate uh, intellectual project. Um, so that, um, and, and by doing that, writing it into this larger story of Jewish uh, political identities and behavior. And then secondly, um, finding these connections to um, a, a larger geopolitical context, the connection to these, these bigger themes on, on the geopolitical agenda in this period of transition from colonial to decolonizing to post-colonial. The story continues also in the 50s where um, Steinberg reacts very explicitly to the Bandung Conference in 1955 and that this becomes a moment of reassessing like, what are we as Jews? Um, are we part of the West? Are we part of the non-West? Where should we be? And uh, in the end, the, the, the the territorialist stance is not the victorious one there, but it's an interesting moment. So using this, what could be seen as an exclusively Jewish story to talk about wider debates, uh, shedding light on them and using them as context, I think is something that I add to this uh, evolving story of, of Jewish politics in the early 20th century. You've listened to a new diplomatic history podcast. For more podcasts, go to newdiplomatichistory.org slash podcasts. They're available on Apple, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.